Welcome in to this week's edition of the Wisports.net podcast. I'm Travis Wilson, General Manager at Wisports.net. Going to talk some uh, WI area meeting and some off-the-court, off-the-field type of stuff today. We have spent a good amount of time the first couple episodes talking about stuff going on on the field, impressions on the early part of the season, some of the top players, what to watch for the rest of the year, and we'll get back into that. We'll get back into a lot of football discussion especially and on field, on court type of action. But today we're going to talk some stuff off the court and off the field because this week and next week the WIAA is holding area meetings around the state of Wisconsin. There's seven of them. They split the state into seven districts and going around and talking to athletic directors, principals, superintendents, coaches uh, about the things that are going on in high school sports, the things impacting the association, the things impacting and, and affecting high school sports. And today, I was at the meeting in Mauston, which was actually the third meeting of the year for the WIA in their uh, tour around the state. And it encompassed a number of the schools in western and kind of southwestern and west central Wisconsin in the, the La Crosse area. Um, you know, the, the Dairyland schools, the Scenic Bluffs, the um, Ridge and Valley, uh, Cooley, South Central, etc. So kind of the, the western part of the state. Uh, and, and of course, it's always interesting how opinions from administrators, from athletic directors, etc. can be very different in different parts of the state. They can have different thoughts on, on things. They can have different things that are important to them. And, and that's to be expected, and that's why the WIA goes out and does these area meetings around the state to get a feel for everybody around the state. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but there's a few items that were on the agenda today where they were big issues today, but at some of the other meetings, you know, at the meeting down in, in Greenfield earlier in the week, for instance, it didn't seem to be a big deal, Where or... Uh, you know, the, the things that they talked about today that, that people kind of had a bigger issue with or, or not as big of an issue with maybe were a little bit more significant down in the Milwaukee area. So, again, always an interesting part of these meetings is, is finding out and, and seeing how things are viewed around the state of Wisconsin. Not going to go through the whole agenda, um, but there were a few things that certainly did stick out. Um, I had mentioned it earlier this week and it had, had mentioned that I thought, uh, a couple of these things, a couple of these rules could be coming down uh, the the pike very soon as possibilities and, and proposals. And sure enough, when the WI uh, posted the area meeting agendas on their website earlier this week, um, it was some things on there that we had thought were coming. And, and we'll start with the first one being the transfer rule. Um, I had talked about it, I think, in our, our first version of the WSN podcast that uh, with the transfers, the very high-profile transfers that had occurred in boys basketball uh, heading to Nicolay High School, um, that there had been some talk and, and that there had been some uh, ideas that maybe you take a look at a rule that's already on the books in the state of Michigan that they've had a few years that they've had tested in court and it has, has held up in court. Um, that relates to pre-existing pre-existing athletic relationships. And I'm going to read what the WIA has right here, right now, um, 
in this wording could change. They could tweak this a little bit as they get more feedback, etc. cetera. Uh, but this is the transfer rule regarding pre-existing athletic relationships. A student who transfers into a member school, whether by a total and complete change of residence by the student and or parents or by any other means, but has a pre-existing athletic relationship to anyone in the new school, shall be ineligible for competition at any level for one calendar year, but may practice. A pre-existing athletic relationship includes, but is not, in li- but is not limited to, one, the student was involved in a non-school or school activity that was coached or directed by a coach, administrator, or parent at the new school. Two, the student received private skill instruction by a coach, administrator, or parent at the new school. Three, attended a summer contact session at the new school. And or four, is involved in summer athletic activities with coach, administrator, parent, or athletes of the new school before attending that school. So again, this is something that comes directly out of a number of high-profile transfers that have occurred recently, most notably those that have occurred at Nicolay High School, where Jalen Johnson and his younger brother Kobe Johnson transferred from Sun Prairie to Nicolay, but not before Desmond Polk had transferred from New Berlin West to Nicolay, and it was uh, you know, brought into question because Nicolay already had their own outstanding basketball player there, Jamari Sibley, 2020 player, a junior, that played AAU basketball with Desmond Polk, with Jalen Johnson. Um, and when these transfers were announced earlier this year, there was a, a pretty good outcry from people around the state of Wisconsin at every level, fans, coaches, um, administrators, everybody, uh, that it wasn't right. They didn't like it. Uh, It it felt like the Golden State Warriors-ing of high school basketball forming of a super team. And so that's where this comes out of. And again, this rule is already, a, a version of this rule is already on the books in Michigan and it's already withheld a court challenge. So that's the... Uh, proposal that they're talking about. It would be a constitutional change that would have to be voted on by the entire membership at the area meeting of the WIAA, which takes place in April of 2019. As the discussion kind of went down today, it was interesting to hear. I thought at this meeting, where it's smaller rural schools, uh, that that maybe there would be a little more support for it than what I heard. Um, I was a little surprised that you know, it wasn't overwhelming support. Um, you know, the schools in the western part of the state, the smaller schools especially, this, I guess, isn't as big a deal to them. They just don't see it very often. You know, it's not impacting them. Um, now, there was a high-profile transfer in the lacrosse area last year when Terrence Thompson transferred from Lacrosse Logan to Lacrosse Central, where a couple of his AAU buddies, the the Davis twins, uh, are, are playing. Uh, so... It just seemed like I thought it would get a little bit more play over here. Now, in the Milwaukee area the other day uh, at the Greenfield meeting, this rule didn't get a lot of support. Um, you know, I think the idea of movement of high school players, of transferring, of, of whatever else is a little bit more accepted in the Milwaukee area, a little bit more, you know, anything goes type of a, an attitude sometimes. Um, you know, a number of the, the coaches in the Milwaukee area have also come from backgrounds in 
AAU and club sports. So, you know, they're they're already seeing how they can not take advantage of it, but um, you know, it's it's more acceptable, I, I think, down in that area. So it'll be interesting to see how the discussion continues to play out and how the the feedback is at the rest of the meetings around the state of Wisconsin, how things go the rest of, of this year. But I do expect that it will be on the agenda next year. And then it's just a matter of whether it passes or not. And we'll continue to have discussions about it, hoping to have Mark Miller, our boys basketball writer, on uh, soon to go over, you know, kind of from a basketball perspective, what it's what it's been. And, and he had a great article uh, just a couple, um, just a, last week, I think it was, uh, about all of the transfers in the Fox Valley Association. You know, we, we think of transfers and, and we think of the high-profile ones like the Johnsons and, and Polk to, to Nicolay, Thompson from Logan to Central, but just kind of the everyday type of transfers. It was amazing reading that article. I mean, I, I follow it pretty closely, obviously, and was aware of a number of them, but the, the sheer scale of the 10 schools in the FBA and how many transfers have been on their teams this year, next year, last year, and how impactful they have been Almost every school had transfers in and or out. So, uh, again, it, something that will continue getting discussion, um, and we'll kind of see where it goes. The other thing ripped from the headlines, law and order style, was a proposed constitutional change that would involve code of conduct and any players or uh, that are charged and or convicted of a felony shall no longer be eligible, shall be ineligible for further participation in all remaining WIAA tournaments for the remainder of their high school career. A couple key points in this and how it's worded and noted. Um, number one, it says tournaments only. So they would leave the decision of whether that athlete should be eligible to participate in the regular season up to the school themselves. As long as they enforce and have a code of conduct in place that, that addresses it, that that school could decide what that code of conduct is and what the punishment would be. Um, whether they continue to allow them to play in the regular season or not after being charged with or convicted of a felony, this rule would make that player ineligible for the WIAA tournament series. And of course, this one comes out of a very controversial situation this year with the boys basketball tournament where last summer Deontay Long, a highly regarded and in fact the top ranked player in the state of Wisconsin in the 2019 class on WSN was involved in a number of armed robberies last summer was charged with was um, charged with a felony party to uh, party to robbery armed robbery he served a 25% uh, uh, suspension during the fall sport of cross country, came back and participated in cross country, played the entire basketball season. I think when they went on an out-of-state trip, he was not allowed to attend based on court order, but actually did not get suspended or disciplined at least, uh, at least suspended anyway, by the school for basketball, which is his primary sport. And of course, they went on to play in the state tournament. He played with an ankle monitoring device on. It was all over the, the news. It was all over... Um, you know, not just uh, the sports news, not just high school sports news, but it was a, a significant news story in general. And it was not a good look 
for the WIAA. It was not a good look for their tournament series, and it was not uh, something that was well-received by many people. So this rule would address that. Now, there are a couple concerns that some people have voiced. Um, number one, it says if you are charged and or convicted of a felony. Well, what happens if you're charged, you're suspended, which I, I think is a very valid way to go about it. If you're charged with a felony, you're suspended, just like we saw with Quintez, Stif uh, Quintez Cephas with the Badgers this year. And then what if the investigation goes on and you end up being cleared or not charged? Do you regain your eligibility? Yes or no, I, I'm not sure. The WIA indicated that, you know, and I think correctly, that it's not a good idea to marry your code of conduct, to marry the code of conduct for the association, for local schools, what have you, to the court system, because obviously there's a different burden of proof that you have for criminal conduct, for criminal um, conviction, than maybe what you would have for, you know, somebody breaking a code violation. Um, you can have code violations that occur without someone being charged or cr with a crime or ticketed, whether it's uh, underage drinking, whether it's smoking, um, chewing, whatever it might be that's in your code of conduct, you know, right now it's different for what the code of conduct would be compared to what the criminal charges might be. So, you know, I guess maybe it's a minor part of it because there hasn't been very many situations where players have been charged with a felony and continued to compete, but there was a big, big uh, high-profile one, and it did not provide a good look for the WIAA. And so this is a proposal that, again, would go before the entire membership at the annual meeting in 2019 and maybe be tweaked a little bit. But, um, you know, one I think that, that there's a, a decent amount of support for. A few other items that were on the agenda that they reviewed and talked about and went over, um, kind of briefly went over the football-only conference realignment proposal that was released by the Wisconsin Football Coaches Association back in July. Just went over kind of the highlights of that, how it came about, um, took some feedback from the schools, and you know, it's it's always interesting on things like this, especially anything related to conference realignment. Everybody looks at how it impacts them, and it's understandable. You have to represent your local uh, you know, community and, and your school and your, your town, your district. Um, so you know, any objections came in the form of, well, I don't like where I'm placed. And that's always a difficult task. I, I was un involved on the ad hoc committee that put together this football-only conference realignment proposal. And certainly there was a number of times where you looked at it and said, man, I, you know, that's not a perfect fit for that school, but just to make everything else work, it, it kind of is the way it has to be. There's no proposal that would ever be 100% perfect for everybody because everybody's preferred situation is being the biggest school in their conference with the shortest total drive times. It's always interesting to hear administrators, coaches, ADs, fans, whoever, you know, if they don't want to be in where they are, they always bring up the geography. It's too far away. We've got to drive too far. Well, if you're the smallest school, yeah, that becomes an issue. But the schools that are the biggest school in their conference that you know, are, are dominating a conference, oh, it, it, driving doesn't, it doesn't matter much to us. It's, you know, it's fine. It's only one, one Friday night a, a year that we've got to go to you know, wherever. Um, so 
it, it's always interesting how that comes into play. Uh, so again, it, are there some people that understandably aren't in the ideal situation for them? Absolutely. Uh, but I think on the, on the whole, there's a lot of good things about it. Uh, there was a, a couple people that had different ideas and, and presented or have presented or given the WIAA what they feel are some other options that should be done. Uh, there's some certainly some validity, validity to what they have said uh, and what their ideas might be, and, and they might be incorporated into uh, some tweaks going forward. Um, but you know, it's also interesting. Sometimes you get these proposals from people about how, you know, we should move this team here and this team here and this team here, and all of a sudden, it impacts eight or ten different conferences, and you kind of lose sight of where the original whole thing started and was going and what was it was supposed to be. Uh, in fact, one of the proposals that I saw, um, you know, of changing these around, whatever, they completely left out at least one team that was involved in all of those conferences. So uh, what do you do with that? <laughs> and, and the other part of it is a lot of times in these, you know, when, when people put together a realignment proposal of their own, it, it's really just shifting the burden or shifting the unhappiness from one school or one group of schools to another group of schools. You know, if you've got two schools out of 20 that complain and you try to address those situations and, and change those schools around, well, guess what? You're just going to make two other schools unhappy uh, after making those two happy. So you're really just shifting where the, the unhappiness is. And that's why ultimately you've just got to do what you feel is right on the, the big scale, the big picture, and stick with it and go with it. Um, you know, the other, uh, a couple other items related to that. Number one, uh, the proposal that was released in terms of the placements isn't final because there will be changes as teams uh, have to declare for eight-man football for the next year by tw uh, December 1st of this year. And there should be three to five teams that will drop from 11-man to eight-man, and then you've got to tweak a little bit from there. The other uh, interesting part is that the co-op deadline is February 1st. So really, you've got to wait until then to find out who's going to co-op going forward so that then you don't have to make more changes. And the original idea was that this football-only conference realignment proposal would be voted on sometime in December, maybe January, after the eight-man deadline. However, Wade Lebecki today indicated that it would probably would be after that February 1st deadline that the proposal would uh, actually come to the board, so probably the March meeting. So it just pushes back the voting uh, date, doesn't change the implementation timeline or anything like that, um, but just looking to wait to have all the changes, all the adjustments that need to be made finalized and then go from there. They did talk about a, uh, the, the conference realignment task force as well. Now this task force is reviewing the entirety, the, the entire conference realignment process, not just for football, but for all sports, for all, um, for all schools. It's a task force of, uh, I think it's about 12 or 14 uh, people that uh, have already met once in, in early August. We'll meet again soon to review how the WIA does their uh, conference realignment process, which really has not changed. The, the guidelines, the, the structure has not changed much in 20 to 30 years or more. I think the language is still from the 1960s. So, you know, it used to all fall on the shoulders of Deb Hauser. 
anybody that wanted realignment, she had to work on it, put it all together, work with those schools. It was a very contentious process. Ultimately, the board of control has final say over what happens. But the, 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 the hard work, the dirty work of making it all come together was Deb's with her retirement. They didn't want to throw that onto a, a new person, which ended up being Kate Peterson Abiad, um, and didn't want it to be a single person. They, they'd like to have potentially a committee that would review that. So, so this task force is working on what the steps are going to be, what the guidelines are going to be, what the process is going to be um, for realignment in general. Now, if we get the football-only realignment through, I think you'll see that job of general conference realignment will be much easier, but um, you know, it kind of remains to be seen. Finally, competitive equity still on the minds of a lot of people. It's a conversation that's been going on for 20 years. It's a, uh, something that has been very f uh, front and center the last couple years with the group of schools in southern Wisconsin, southwest Wisconsin, forcing a multiplier onto the annual meeting agenda a few years ago. That getting tabled and sent to committee. Uh, the next year they came back and enforced the multiplier on the agenda again, voted on that, voted it down, voted down a reducer, voted down a success factor. Last year, voted down a rural-urban plan for basketball. So the, the question for the WIA staff and for the Board of Control is, you know, where, where do we go? Where does the membership want us to go on competitive equity? And as I mentioned earlier, you get different thoughts and different viewpoints on this in different areas of the state. On Monday in Greenfield, the WIA said that almost all of the 85 people there said, when, when asked, raised their hand and said, let's, it, it's done, let's move on. You know, it, it's not, there's nothing there to, to look at right now. Today, it remained a hot button issue. There was, uh, I think, 40 people there, 36 of them raised their hand. Uh, when asked if they felt that competitive equi equity was still a problem that deserved to be um, you know, looked at and looked into. They talked about uh, you know, some of the same things that, that they've already done and already defeated, the multiplier, the reducer, there's still some people that support those. The success factor you know, seems to have a, a growing, slowly growing amount of support because ultimately... With the competitive equity, the reducer, the multiplier, the urban-rural, all that stuff is dealing with, you know, the the uh, the problem, or not not even really dealing with the problem, but dealing with, you know, how you get to the problem, and the success factor actually deals with the problem, with you know, in people's eyes anyway, which is a certain percentage or a a, a part of the membership is winning too much, so rather than dealing with how you get to that point, deal with the, the, the success factor deals with, you know, what is actually occurring. And, you know, the, another reason that it, it's favored by some people is that it treats all schools differently. It's not just something that only impacts private schools like the multiplier did. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Now, of interest, Aaron Engel, the superintendent at GET, did present a proposal that was very similar to the uh, ur rural urban plan in that it was geographic-based, um, his proposal, uh, he, he determined that the average diameter of a school district is about 8.3 miles. So if, if, you, uh, if you look at it from that perspective around the state, 
In some places, it's a lot longer than that, of course. You know, in my area, in, in rural southern, southwestern Wisconsin, it, it's a lot longer than that. Um, but he determined the average distance is about eight miles for a diameter of a school district. So under his proposal, you draw a radius line from every school, eight miles. And if there's any other schools that are in that area, you add their enrollment in to a formula to basically determine if, if they're in an urban area or if they're in a, um, you know, if they have a large number of students to draw from. That's what this is all about, is that the idea that it, schools that are around other schools and around population centers have more students that they can draw from and that that's an advantage. Now, whether, you know, whether that's an advantage, how much of it is, how much advantage it is, you know, how it is an advantage still is kind of unclear and un. Um, undocumented and, and un, uh, you know, not very well um, defined, I don't think, in general. Um, the other part of his plan, he determined that about 9%, 9 of students in the state took advantage of open enrollment or private school choice programs. And so another part of the formula is you have 9% added on to your uh, enrollment figure. Um, it's capped, so you can't go to a certain uh, you know, percentage or whatever. Long story short, he did present a table that lays out the adjusted figure for all of the teams in the state of Wisconsin. And this is in basketball that he did it. And although I think the proposal, as, as he would like to see it anyway, would be in all sports. And then laid out how it would impact divisions in 2016 or would have impacted divisions in 2016, um, who would have gone up, who would have gone down, etc. Uh, it was it was interesting, you know, looking over who goes up and who goes down. Uh, certainly, there's some things that I, I think don't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, schools like a Janesville Parker, a McGuanago, a Germantown, Oshkosh West, Beloit Memorial, Wanakee, Oconomowoc, Muskego, D.C. Everest, Hudson would all go down to Division Two, which, you know, just seems kind of odd. In, in Hudson, for instance, they, they don't credit any enrollment to them. <laughs> so even though Hudson's right on the border of a significant or even part of a significant metropolitan area in the Twin Cities, because it's a border school, they don't get any, you know, uh, pick up any additional population in the formula. So Hudson would go to Division Two, which just doesn't quite seem right. And, you know, you look at some of the smaller Division Two schools, you have teams uh, like a Xavier, Edgewood, Brown Deer, um, Toma, Grafton, all, you know, some of these schools around a 500 enrollment to 700 enrollment that would be going against schools of actual enrollments of 1,800 or more. Um, you have some kind of, I guess what you would call more rural, currently Division II type of schools, like a, my home or my, where I live now, Reedsburg, the Portage, Sauk Prairie, Rhinelander, Shawano, New London, uh, Merrill, Mosinee, Lakeland, uh, some of those schools that would actually move down from Division Two to Division Three under this proposal. Uh, so you would have teams like a, a Reedsburg, a Soccer, a Portage in the same division as Richland Center, Lomira, um, Chilton, GET, River Valley. You know, is is that any more of an equitable situation than what we have now? You have a, a couple of schools 
that would actually move up two divisions, which is something that I have a significant issue with and had a significant issue with under the rural urban plan. Sheboygan Lutheran moves up from Division 5 to, to Division 3. Williams Bay, McDonald Central. I mean, these are schools of 160 to 180 kids that would be competing in Division 3 against schools of, uh, schools of enrollments, you know, 8 to 900 in is that really an equitable situation? So it, this is a very early proposal just coming from, you know, one one administrator. It's, it's certainly, you know, something that, that is out there uh, to, to talk about. Um, the, the WI is aware of it. It's not something they're acting on right now. I don't know if they'll ever act on it. But, you know, in the absence of other plans, people are stepping up to the plate and, trying to put together some solutions that they feel would be beneficial, which you like to see. Uh, but as Dave Anderson said today, that the executive director of the WIA, there's no golden ticket. There's no perfect plan that has been adopted you know, elsewhere in the country that you just come and say, hey, that's it. That's the one. That fixes all the problems. He did note that uh, he knows the executive director of the Indiana Association very well and talks to him frequently. And Indiana has instituted a success factor. Actually, they did that, I want to say it might have been three to five years ago or more. And he said that in Indiana, they don't have complaints anymore. <laughs> then the success factor has, has addressed most of the issues that they had. Um, and if you look around at all of the different items that they've tried around the state, whether it's the reducer that they do in Minnesota, whether it's a multiplier they do in a few states, the success factor, whatever else, it seems like the success factor in those other states has been the most successful. So it kind of circles back to the idea that maybe the success factor is one that needs a little bit more attention, a little bit more fleshing out, a little bit more review, and perhaps brought to the membership. But again, We'll see where it goes. There hasn't been a real clear directive of, you know, this is what the membership would like to do. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll it, it's obvi obviously continued to be a discussion item, and it will continue to be a discussion item. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I don't have a perfect uh, idea, a perfect plan, a perfect solution for whatever the, the problems uh, are or perceived to be. And obviously, I don't think anybody does right now. So they'll, they'll keep looking at it. They'll keep talking about it. There will be people that will be frustrated that feel that there isn't enough action being taken. But ultimately, everything they've tried to this point, which is four different proposals in the last three years, all of them have been voted down. So you got to try something different. Got to Got to look for something different. And, and I don't know what that is. All right. So let's get to our stat of the week. 6.5% is our stat of the week. That is the open enrollment rate in the state of Wisconsin. 6.5% of all public school students in the state of Wisconsin are open enrolled students. If you go to the 2016-17 figures, the amount of state aid that transferred with every one of the open enrolled students in Wisconsin was $6,600 for every student that open enrolls to a, a different district. Um, so if you think about it, if you add 50 kids in a, in a, in a given year in open enrollment, which is, can easily be done no matter what size school you are, that's a, an addition of $330,000 per year. Um, 
by the way, the, the way we get to that 6.5%, there are 867,137 total public school enrollment as of the 2015-16 school year. And there were 55,737 open enrollments during that time. And that open enrollment number has continued to increase, by the way. So it might actually be closer to 7% uh, for this, this current year. But 6.5% of every student, of all students, excuse me, in Wisconsin are open enrolled students. There are some districts, by the way, that are much higher than that. There are some rural, small school districts where it's 30 to almost 35% of their entire enrollment comes via open enrollment, which is uh, just a, a staggering number when you think about it. And, and the, the numbers that you get, that you can get or lose just as significantly from open enrollment, if you have a net negative open enrollment number, you're losing a lot of money. There's, there's districts that are losing millions and millions of dollars in state aid because they have so many play or so many students transferring out of their district for whatever reason. Whereas there's some districts that are obviously gaining students and, and making it a significant issue. So that leads me to my rant of the week. And it's related to open enrollment and, and retention and, and everything involved of getting students to come to your school. Schools have to do a better job overall to promote themselves, to market themselves, to try to gain new students, to try to re retain the students that they have. There are a number of schools that do a great job with it, that are very proactive, that, are, that have dedicated public relations uh, staff or school information staff or whatever it's designated as. Um, Joel Doy, a good friend of ours uh, at WSN, has done a great job at Monroe Point School District, for instance. I know there's a number of other schools where uh, they've really taken on uh, being active in promoting themselves, and, and that includes social media. That includes, you know, press releases. That includes, uh, you know, hosting and, and being very active on their own websites and to, to promote themselves. That includes, yes, advertising and recruiting students. Um, Ithaca, the school I mentioned earlier, I have heard radio advertisements for them. Come check out Ithaca during the open enrollment period, see what we're all about. You know, and it's obviously those kinds of things have been effective. So schools in general have to do a better job of that. Some of these schools that are losing so many kids, you've got to invest in retaining those students and getting more students into your district. Um, because again, if you're losing a lot of kids, it's, it's significant. And if you invest, you know, $100,000 a year, let's say, in hiring somebody and, and doing promotion and advertising and whatever else, it, it can pay off very quickly um, in the state aid adjustment, whether, uh, you know, when you start gaining kids or losing fewer kids, um, it, it increases your engagement in the community. It, uh, it, it makes things easier when you're soliciting donations, when you're going to referendums, you know, when you've got that positive message out in the community, it, it just makes everything easier. It, it makes the relationship between, you know, the, the people into in the uh, community and in the school much easier. It, it, it just it is a positive step for schools that not enough are taking yet, but many are finding that they need to get doing it or they're going to continue to fall behind. They're going to continue to fall behind on losing students out of their district, on not gaining enough students into their district. So if, if you're a school that is not being proactive 
in public relations, marketing, advertising, everything else, whether it's a public school or a private school, you need to start doing it. And so that's my rant of the week. Uh, we've gone a little longer than we usually do here. We're over the 36-minute mark now, but a lot of stuff going on that I wanted to get in and talk about today. So uh, appreciate you listening in. I'll borrow Paul, Coach uh, Paul Chris uh, word there. Appreciate you joining in on our Wisports.net podcast this week. Check us out every Wednesday on WSN. You can find our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud on our site as well. So thanks for listening in. Make sure you get out and support your local teams, soccer, volleyball, golf, tennis, football, everything going on. Uh, It's a great, great showcase for your communities. Get out and support it, and we'll see you out there at the games. Thanks for listening in to the Wisports.net podcast. I'm General Manager of Wisports, Travis Wilson.